Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for staying tuned in for the second hour of our uh, Empire Urology lecture this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, my colleague at Mount Sinai, Dr. Raj Parohit, who's an associate professor of urology and the director of voiding dysfunction and reconstructive urology in the Mount Sinai Urology Department. Uh, Dr. Parohit is an internationally known specialist in reconstructive surgical procedures, including uh, urethroplasty and continence procedures, treatment of mesh complications, and today's topic, uh, transgender surgery. Uh, before we get started, Dr. Prohit, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your career pathway and how you became involved in gender affirmation surgery. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Alex, uh, to begin with. But uh, it was sort of a meandering path. Uh, I uh, sort of bumped into this. I, I finished my residency at UCSF and was uh, planning to do a uh, fellowship in oncology, and it turned out my wife matched out here in New York uh, in OBGYN, so I sort of shifted my plans around a little bit. I ended up uh, doing a fellowship uh, after working uh, with, a, with a hospital affiliated with Downstate. I uh, did my fellowship with Jerry Blavis in sort of female reconstruction, but then just became a male reconstructive expert because no one else was doing it at the time, and I had trained with Dr. Mackinich over at UCSF as a resident. Uh, and then Sinai recruited me um, about three years ago to help sort of shore up their um, gender affirmation surgery program. So uh, again, it's sort of meandering, but all along I've been sort of writing some papers and sort of maintaining an academic interest in different topics and sort of going from one topic to another. But it sort of positioned me well enough that I'll be a, you know, a candidate to get recruited. Um, so it kept my mind open. That's, that would be my advice to everyone all the residents so just kind of keep your options open always sort of pursue whatever you're interested in and uh you know from an academic level like write papers and stuff that you think is are interesting questions so um that's great thank you so much dr Prohead. i'm going to turn the uh mic over to you for your uh, presentation now if you could try to leave about uh, five ten minutes at the end 15 minutes um so we can go over some questions that the audience will submit through the chat. Um, that would be great. Sure. So um, thank you so much, Alex, and uh, thanks everyone for having me this morning. Uh, I thought I'd just give you sort of a broad introduction to gender-affirming genital surgery. I know, uh, with the exception of NYU and uh, Sinai, uh, a lot of residents may not have uh, seen many of these surgeries and may not be familiar. So I thought it'd be a good sort of start just to give you some background on what we do and the kinds of surgeries that we do. I do have a, a short uh, four minute video of, of vaginoplasty. I wanted to, hopefully it'll, it won't be a problem uh, transmitting it. So in the back of our minds, I think we all have a sense of what's sort of normal and what's abnormal um, and what's sort of pathologic and what's not pathologic. Uh, and this hasn't been an issue sort of in the trans community, the way medicine has defined the trans community and the psychiatric sort of definitions have constantly shifted from being sort of uh, a bad sort of disease to have or an abnormality. Uh, the original DSMs uh, classified gender identity disorders um, and sort of this transsexualism category and was seen as a sort of a pathology 
that uh, needed to be corrected. Uh, and you know, there was a lot of energy spent on how to correct this pathology. Uh, in subsequent uh, DSMs, uh, the patient sort of, the definition gradually uh, altered and changed uh, to become uh, less about pathology than more about how um, patients' identities could be caused, causing distress to themselves because of the way commu the community around them interacted with them. Uh, and so it was considered not so much a pathology as much as uh, a cultural response to an individual situation that um, needed to be corrected. Uh, and in future DSMs, I think there's increasingly uh, this sort of gender identity disorders or gender dysphoria will um, become less and less and less pathologic and within the spectrum of normal. Uh, historically speaking, uh, this actually goes pretty far back and uh, clearly orchiectomies in eunuchs have been done for thousands of years. But from an academics perspective, the field really started uh, in the uh, late 1800s uh, with Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who was sort of the father of sexology and an advocate for gay and transgender rights. He co-founded the uh, Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft uh, in uh, Germany uh, back uh, in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, and this sort of coincided with increasing medical knowledge um, of uh, how hormones impacted the body. So you know, estrogens were first sort of uh, isolated and uh, being, were able to be given to patients in 1929 and testosterone in the 1930s. And uh, surgical techniques sort of went hand in hand at the same time. Uh, the first uh, actual uh, sort of medical orchiectomy done uh, in Germany was in 1922. Um, and uh, the first vaginoplasty followed that in 1931. Uh, the Dora Rector was the patient. She um, was sort of a, essentially did sort of menial work uh, in the institute um, that Magnus Hirschfeld had founded. Uh, she's believed to have been executed by the Nazis uh, later in the 1930s uh, after her surgery. Lily Al was pretty famous. Uh, she is the first to have uh, a full gender reassignment surgery uh, in the 1930s, but then died after a failed uh, uterine transplant. Her story was made famous in uh, The Danish Girl, uh, some of you may have seen. And Christine Jorgensen was sort of an important sort of cultural figure in uh, at least the United States. She was a XGI who uh, had her surgery done, a vaginoplasty uh, done in uh, Denmark uh, in the 1950s, but then became sort of a popular celebrity. And rather than being ostracized, was often uh, invited to these major social society events. And it was the first sort of the beginnings of acceptance and uh, normalcy uh, of uh, these uh, trans patients. Now, uh, in the, professionally speaking, in the United States, Harry Benjamin uh, was a German-American who was affiliated with the uh, Magnus Hirschfeld Institute, um, and he got stuck here in World War I because of the embargo. He had come to New York to give some lectures, uh, but he ended up staying in New York and sort of developing a, 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 a practice focused on trans patients. Uh, and he pioneered uh, American standards of care. Uh, the organization he founded, which was originally called the uh, Harry Benjamin Society ultimately became uh, WPATH, which is sort of the equivalent to the AUA in the trans community. Now, uh, again, this is uh, some, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this, but the terminology is really important for patients and it's important for providers as we start taking care of these patients to think about. Uh, so sex is sort of your chromosomal identity, uh, but gender is the identity that you, you sort of identify with uh, 
uh, we you know obviously refer to cis patients and trans patients uh, routinely, and uh, cis patients being uh, patients whose uh, sexual identity or their chromosomal identity uh, conforms with their gender identity. Uh, and it goes without saying, but I'm sure everyone knows this, but their you know, pronouns should refer to the patient's gender identity and what they prefer to be called. Uh, it's a very important issue when you first start taking care of these patients that you make them feel comfortable, that you understand their issues. And uh, we've had, uh, I've seen at least a few complaints uh, where uh, patients have complained that their provider constantly referred to them by their birth identity rather than their actual identity. Uh, and it actually went all the way up to you know, human resources and went to like um, a higher level in the hospital, the complaints. Uh, so these are important issues. And as more and more trans patients uh, come to your clinics, it's gonna be something you should uh, feel comfortable uh, you know, talking to them in the way that they wanna be referred to. Now, uh, gender identity is you know, classically considered as binary identity, but there's a multitude of different types of identities. So some patients may feel that you know, they're only sort of partly female, partly male, sort of a spectrum of identities that, uh, although it's a spectrum, it really sort of, there are poles between male and female identity. Um, and people tend to sort of cluster around those types of identities. Uh, but ultimately, I think they're all within that spectrum of normal that I sort of alluded to first. Uh, and this is sort of, this is who we are as like sort of human beings. You know, this isn't just that we're, you know, we're men and women and everyone else is abnormal. I think these kind of gender identities reflect uh, complexity uh, in, uh, in us. Now, uh, it's important also to remember that their uh, gender identity may not conform with their um, attraction to others. So you could have, for example, a trans female who considers uh, herself uh, homosexual uh, and is attracted to women. Uh, and this is important as surgeons because you need to uh, understand what they're looking for from the surgery. So we've had, and I'll show this in a, in a few minutes, uh, patients who are um, uh, trans men uh, that we create new phalluses with, but who uh, are still interested in preserving the vaginas and having penetrative uh, intercourse uh, with their vaginas. So you have to take these kind of calculations uh, into uh, account when you're uh, doing surgery. Now, one of the big sort of major changes that's occurred in the United States and the reason why centers like uh, NYU, the centers like Mount Sinai have really invested themselves in this is because there's been a big change in insurance uh, coverage uh, in the 2010s. Uh, the initially it started uh, in 2012 when the California Department of Insurance sort of prohibited uh, exclusion of medical conditions if in trans patients, if it was also covered in uh, cis patients. So uh, the um, Medicare subsequently, two years later under the Obama administration, sort of agreed uh, that that should happen. And in 2016, Medicare covered uh, gender transition as well. Uh, now, a lot of insurance companies followed these sort of leads and started covering gender transition, which made this uh, economically viable sort of uh, you know, surgery to do, uh, particularly at major centers. Before all of this happened, these uh, surgeries were being done by sort of small private practice uh, groups that were generally ostracized by the academic medical community. Uh, unfortunately, in uh, December 2016, a federal judge ruled that the HHS uh, exceeded its authority in mandating coverage uh, and right now it's sort of in the courts, but, uh, and it's sort of being worked out. You can imagine that the current uh, federal administration is less friendly to coverage of uh, trans uh, care uh, than the prior administration was. 
Uh, as it stands now, although this is about two years old from the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's constantly shifting, sort of month by month, uh, but uh, some states mandate both coverage by Medicaid plans as well as by um, private insurances. Some mandate only coverage by private insurances, and uh, many states mandate no coverage. So a lot of the academic centers that have uh, started uh, really focusing on care for these patients uh, have occurred in these blue states like New York, Oregon, California, you know, Illinois, um, and Pennsylvania. So. Um, uh, you know, politics plays a big role in uh, how we practice. I think we already know that, but it's probably nowhere more true than in uh, trans care. Now, in terms of the uh, background of the epidemiology, about uh, half percent or 0.5% of patients uh, identifies trans. Uh, and this is sort of older data, uh, but uh, increasingly as society accepts these trans patients, the mean age has declined from 40 to 27. Uh, the largest uh, series of, and this was a non-peer-reviewed paper uh, that came out in 2016, found that about 0.6% uh, uh, of patients in the United States uh, identify as trans. So it's not a huge population of patients, but there's uh, increasing data that shows that uh, the, the numbers are increasing as more and more patients feel comfortable again socially. Uh, for example, in uh, the Netherlands, there's one institute that basically takes care of all trans patients. Uh, and uh, you can see that the numbers of patients that are presented to their clinic has essentially skyrocketed, both uh, in children, uh, adolescents, and adults, and in both trans and uh, men and women. Now, uh, interestingly enough, although the uh, numbers of male uh, trans men and trans women are roughly equivalent, the numbers of surgeries are far greater in trans women uh, than trans men. And I think to some extent, it reflects the complexity of sort of creating a new phallus compared to creating a new vagina. Uh, and we still, as I'll show in a few minutes, uh, have, still haven't quite figured out how best to uh, you know, create a functioning uh, phallus that um, has sensation um, and uh, is able to have erections. Now, uh, trans children, uh, obviously treatment is very controversial um, for a lot of reasons, including political reasons, including ethical reasons. Uh, but I think one of the key things is that uh, in only about a quarter of patients at most will uh, kids who initially identify as trans continue to remain trans. A lot of them uh, may, uh, probably about 50 to 75% of them uh, will uh, be uh, homosexual, but um, uh, will not continue as uh, trans. Uh, but the flip side of it is earlier interventions, uh, arguments have been made may improve psychological and cosmetic outcomes in these patients. So uh, there's been a lot of sort of effort to try to detect which patients will, which kids will remain trans and which kids will um, uh, sort of go back to their birth identity. Um, in uh, adolescents, uh, it's becoming sort of clear and clear that after the age of 11 and 12, sort of that gender identity gets fixed. Uh, and it's not very common for uh, the identities to switch over you know, in their middle of their teenage years. Um, er, and uh, earlier intervention, uh, so you know, these kids are going through puberty, they're going through you know, seeing their friends, and uh, we've all been through that age in our teens where there's a lot of uh, sort of social uh, tensions. Uh, but the earlier intervening these patients, uh, the less you have sort of anxiety and depression um, both from a psychological perspective and social perspective, but also because these patients start developing uh, secondary sex characteristics that you sort of stop uh, developing. Uh, top surgery is made easier if you intervene earlier, and let's say the, uh, the kid has surgery done in their 20s. 
because they have less tissue, um, uh, breast tissue, to either have to augment or to uh, place. Uh, and they can potentially get breast development in trans uh, women. Uh, facial feminization may not be needed at all, which is a fairly complicated surgery involving shaving parts of the, parts of the mandible um, as well as the forehead. Uh, the bottom surgery, uh, which is uh, you know, what I do, genital surgery is uh, significantly more difficult, uh, particularly for trans women, because you have significantly less tissue available to you uh, when patients don't have a phallus or uh, very little scrotal tissue. And so we'll often have to use, and these kids who started hormones early and then in their 20s or you know, 30s started having, um, wanted to have surgery done, uh, we'll often have to use adjunctive uh, tissues uh, for their surgeries. Now, uh, the WPATH, again, the sort of organizing body, the equivalent to the AUA, uh, they recommend potentially uh, you know, considering uh, reversible um, hormones that may delay uh, puberty for these patients. Uh, and there's still a debate about whether any kind of irreversible surgical procedures are being done. I don't uh, do any surgeries in uh, adolescents. Uh, the youngest patients will be in their essentially early 20s. Um, and WPATH has still not come out uh, formally, but uh, generally uh, discourage irreversible surgical procedures uh, in these kids at this point. Um, one of the important things, and this will come up later on, is uh, on, uh, patients who are on hormone, hormones, uh, generally we like to wait at least uh, two years, particularly for trans men, uh, prior to their surgery. This gives us enough time uh, for the clitoris to become significantly larger. Uh, the clitoromegaly takes, uh, takes time and uh, it be uh, becomes a new phallus in the metoidoplasty, as I'll show. So uh, generally, we don't like to do surgery uh, right away. Uh, if patients have transitioned, uh, we let them first do, uh, you know, let them sort of develop uh, uh, the, uh, the physical effects of their hormones prior to surgery. Um, I'm sure we've seen this, everyone has seen this in the uh, newspapers. Uh, but I always talk to my patients about reproductive health. Uh, just because they're transitioning or considering surgery doesn't mean they may not want to have children uh, later on. Uh, trans uh, men, uh, as long as they obviously they haven't had uh, a hysterectomy or a vaginectomy, can still get pregnant. Uh, and uh, the hormones are potentially uh, reversible, uh, at least for a brief period. Uh, and trans women uh, will often uh, choose to freeze their sperm so that uh, they may, uh, in the future, uh, once, if they have a female partner, still be able to have uh, children. Now, in terms of surgery, uh, the WPATH recommends at least a year of living in the desired gender role. Uh, and the reason for this is not because of patient regret. Uh, the main reason you want to consider uh, at least having uh, the patient, you know, sort of be, be, their uh, be the gender that they are is because of social ostracization. So, you know, a lot of patients who come out, and I've seen this in my patients, uh, will uh, uh, lose their jobs, may lose their health insurance as they transition. Uh, and as a consequence, those kind of resources won't be available to them after surgery. So uh, if uh, they lose their insurance, for example, or they lose their jobs, or their social networks and their family support system breaks down, they may not have anyone to help take care of them after surgery. Uh, uh, we also recommend a year of hormonal therapy for some of the reasons I've also described. And uh, we have uh, all patients who have genital surgery need two letters of psychological support just to confirm that uh, there isn't any other sort of psychological issue that might be uh, at least causing the patient to identify. Um, uh, in our practice at Sinai, we've never had a patient have regret for having the surgery. And I think we have a fairly thorough 
uh, vetting process, uh, which some have complained may be a little too thorough and uh, we may be serving as too aggressive the gatekeepers. Uh, in addition to this, all of our patients get uh, laser electrolysis prior to surgery. Uh, we make sure that they have social work and support in place uh, prior to surgery so that uh, once they have this fairly uh, substantial surgery, uh, they're not left on their own and that they'll have someone who will uh, you know, be able to take care of them, they'll have a place to stay. Uh, a lot of the trans patients are uh, not well off and uh, some of them are homeless, so we need to make sure that they have a place to stay uh, after surgery when they recover. Now, the numbers of surgeries have really exploded. This is from a couple years ago, um, and the numbers now are probably three times as high. Uh, at, this is the numbers at Sinai from 2016 to 2019, and this is sort of all departments. It's essentially a combination of urology, plastic surgery, ENT, uh, but you can see that the numbers have uh, really um, uh, gone through the roof, and in 2020, uh, were it not for COVID, of course, uh, we would have expected these numbers to continue their ascent. Uh, the process is pretty thorough, though. So we don't just have, unlike uh, probably other types of surgeries that we do, um, such as a urethroplasty or you know, whatever sling placement, where you know, I meet the patient and then we schedule surgery if I think it's appropriate, uh, you know, we have a pretty thorough process. So if a patient comes to me first, I'll send them to the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery at Sinai which is comprised of primary care doctors, it's comprised of psychiatry, we have social workers. So they'll go through this whole process of meeting with all of these uh, sort of groups to make sure that they have uh, the setup in place after surgery, that they're medically clear, that they're not smoking cigarettes, uh, which could compromise some of the flaps that we do, um, and that um, aside from a psychiatric perspective, they're cleared. So we'll have all of these letters will be done and it will be in the chart after I've met them. Um, and uh, finally, the patients need hair removal, uh, potentially, if they're having a vaginoplasty done uh, using stroll tissue. Uh, and we have a laser machine set up at Sinai for that. Now, this is one of the, one of the keys um, that, you know, once you do surgery, it's not just a benefit that you know, the patient feels better about it, but it actually alleviates this condition of uh, gender dysphoria, and they feel much less stress and tension and uh, psychological sort of improvement uh, from this. This is a meta-analysis. Unfortunately, um, and the you know, quality of life, sexual function, all these things improve in these patients. Unfortunately, the data is not that great though. Um, so uh, it was a meta-analysis of uh, a lot of data, but you know, the, the data from a granular level uh, wasn't that high quality. Uh, and there's you know, a lot of papers, other papers that have uh, followed this 2010 paper that is sort of consistent with this. Uh, I, still, I think we need, still need better data to confirm this um, uh, and it's, uh, it's sort of developing now. Now, uh, after surgery, about uh, there's general satisfaction basically for male to female, uh, 87%, and female to male, even though the surgery is more complicated and even higher rate. Uh, but it's important when we talk to patients that we ask them sort of what they want from surgery. Um, so some patients may not want surgery at all. Uh, some patients may want only an orchiectomy so that they don't have to take hormones. Uh, other patients want to go sort of full bore. So the trans men may want not just a phalloplasty, but they may also want to have a penile prosthesis placed and uh, afterwards. They may want to have sensation with their clitoris uh, so we can re-implant the clitoris uh, close to the base of the phallus so they get uh, sensation with sexual stimulation. Uh, and regret is quite rare. Uh, so one to 1.5% in uh, the trans women and less than 1% in the trans men However, uh, even that regret, so this was 
sort of uh, looking at all of the patients who had regret uh, in this uh, from Amsterdam. But even then, most of the regret occurred much earlier in the process. Uh, so like a decade ago, two decades ago, we think we've gotten far more sophisticated about making sure patients have an adequate psychiatric evaluation. The other setting I've seen regret occur is in these destination centers. So there's a center, for example, in Thailand. Uh, there's centers in Amsterdam where patients uh, from America will fly to these centers, get the surgery done, and then come back. You know, and in, the, in that setting, the surgeon really doesn't know the patient that well. They don't have the opportunity to get psychiatrists that, that they trust uh, to evaluate these patients. Uh, again, in my own experience, at Sinai, we've never had a patient have regret uh, after having uh, done almost a thousand uh, vaginoplasties now at, the, at, at Sinai. Uh, so I think it's quite rare. Uh, and then incidence is declining as we're getting more sophisticated with this. Now, uh, for male to female bottom surgery, uh, we can do a simple orchiectomy. Uh, many patients will opt for this because it's more cost effective, especially if their insurance situation is you know, in and out. Uh, they'll get the surgery done so that they don't have to continue um, spironolactone and testosterone blockers uh, and can continue just the estradiol. Uh, with the vaginoplasty, the penile skin is used to line uh, the cavity of the neovagina, uh, but there's a lot of other ways to do this. I know, uh, I know Li Zhao at uh, NYU has uh, been using uh, peritoneum. Um, our plastic surgeons also use uh, a peritoneal free graft uh, for the vaginoplasty. Uh, for female to male uh, surgery, uh, metoidoplasty is using a hormonally enlarged clitoris to become the new phallus. Uh, and a phalloplasty uh, is essentially a way to create an entirely new phallus using either a local uh, tissue flap uh, or a free flap. So I'll kind of take each of these in turn and just give you a sense of, of what we do. Uh, again, with orchiectomies, uh, some patients may only want this. There's an idea that it may decrease the risk of DVTs because patients can be on lower doses of estrogens and they don't have some of the side effects uh, of spironolactone. Uh, and uh, long-term, I think it's more uh, effective. Uh, it's not a radical orchiectomy that we do. So I'd make a very small incision that's probably just about a centimeter wide. Uh, I'll sort of push the testes up against the skin and uh, then open up the tunica vaginalis. Uh, and so we are basically left with just the testes and then strip the entire uh, cord all the way up uh, as high as it can go uh, through that small incision. And we can make basically this uh, small incision can, uh, in the midline can add, uh, access both testes. Um, and that's a pretty common surgery that we do. It takes about half an hour, and obviously outpatient procedure. Uh, and some patients will just sort of stick with this. Uh, the bread and butter for me is uh, the vaginoplasty, uh, which was originally sort of uh, all of sort of the technical uh, refinements occurred after uh, World War II. Harold Gillies was a uh, British plastic surgeon who learned a lot of what he did uh, based on uh, uh, trauma patients who, um, you know, had, who he tried to reconstruct sort of the semblance of a new phallus or reconstruct uh, their pelvis. Uh, but the real sort of founder of the techniques that we use now was a French surgeon named Georges Bureau who uh, worked, uh, and this is the image of him here, who worked out of Morocco. Uh, his uh, and I guess back then they didn't wear clothes when they operated. Um, but his uh, idea was to use uh, sort of a midline incision uh, to you know, sort of develop the space uh, behind the uh, corpora uh, cavernosa and behind the urethra uh, and the space of retzius. Uh, he would then use uh, local skin flaps, bring it down, uh, do an orchiectomy. 
and essentially tie off both corpora cavernosa, bring the remnant of the urethra forward, uh, and excise uh, the corpora cavernosa. Uh, in this setup, though, uh, you can see that there was no place for a clitoris. So these patients did not have uh, a, uh, any sensation uh, with intercourse, but they had a reasonably a reasonable functional outcome uh, at the end of this. Uh, we sort of already went through this, and we'll skip that slide. Um, but with uh, what we try to do these days is try to put like with like. So the remnant of the clitoris comes from the glands. Uh, the inner propulsion becomes a portion of uh, the clitoral hood with our technique. Uh, the strotum becomes uh, the labia minora uh, with how we do. So we're kind of putting things that, uh, again, are similar embryologically uh, back in the way that in some ways they should have been. Uh, this is a five-hour operation generally, and I'm gonna, we've, I've cut it down to four minutes, so it's gonna be skipping around. Uh, I, I hope the images are clear. It's clear on my screen. Um, but what we start with is, uh, uh, what I start with at least, is start with a, uh, a harvesting of the scrotal flap. Uh, this will be used to uh, deepen the uh, vagina later on. Uh, and then we'll, uh, after we do that, we'll uh, do an orchiectomy. So we're removing the testes. It's already been removed on the other side. This patient, we were fortunate, had a fairly uh, good-sized phallus. Uh, the scrotal skin that was removed is then tapered, is deep, sort of defatted, um, and tapered around a, a, a dilator, which will then, as I'll show in a second, be used to um, uh, deepen the vagina. Uh, the penis is then separated from the skin, so we've um, uh, essentially, uh, again, separated the skin from the penis, and you can see the skin is on the top side there, the penis is uh, on the bottom side, uh, the rest of the phallus. Uh, we've left uh, the vascularity intact as much as possible. Uh, and then the, there's a lot of different techniques, but what we do is separate the neurovascular bundle uh, from the corpora cavernosa and also separate the uh, urethra from the corpora cavernosa. Uh, and so all you're left with then is um, essentially on the bottom side here, you see the urethra on the top side, you see the neurovascular bundle and uh, the corpora cavernosa. Now this is the uh, graph that we use for the skin and you can see how it adds an extra you know, four to five centimeters of length uh, or, or rather of depth to the vagina. Uh, the clitoris is fashioned using uh, a remnant of the, uh, of the glands, and so this will be sens sensate. Most of these patients will be able to have orgasms afterwards, and you can see we've created a nice clitoral hood as well. So uh, uh, now we're, we have the penile skin has been inverted. We've sutured the uh, graft in place, and now we've uh, sort of finally excised a remnant of the corpora cavernosa. So the patient really has uh, very little uh, remaining penile tissue here. Uh, and we have the neurovascular bundles been freed up. Uh, this is sort of the most challenging phase, at least in my opinion, of the operation where we have to create the pocket that the vagina is gonna sit in. Uh, so one of the risks of the surgery are uh, fistulas to the rectum. Uh, and this occurs when uh, you, know, you accidentally injure the rectum at this point. So we created the pocket and we've dunked the tissue, uh, uh, the, the penile tissue and that scrotal graft uh, into the pocket, which now becomes the lining of the uh, new vagina. Uh, again, here we're just suturing the back wall of the vagina to, uh, 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 and this is an area that tends to sort of break down. Uh, the, the vaginal tissue, remember, is essentially a flap 
uh, and so it's important not to dissect too much tissue out in that area. Um, here we're kind of doing the cosmetic work of creating uh, labia. Oftentimes there's excess scrotal tissue or fat, uh, but we want to leave enough fat that it looks like a nice uh, labia majora. Uh, the urethra uh, I like to do last uh, because it tends to bleed a lot. Uh, and here we're creating a clitoral hood for the clitoris that we had sort of previously um, uh, had created. Uh, and as we create this clitoral hood, we can also create the labia minora uh, and uh, create some nice folds in the urethra, uh, nice folds in the labia rather. Uh, and then finally, we'll finish with the urethra, which it tends to bleed a lot, uh, which will become sort of that, um, the, that anterior uh, wall of the vagina. Uh, and this will uh, be sutured on. Um, uh, what we do at the end of the case is pack the vagina, so that allows the graft, the scrotal graft, to sort of stay in place, and the packing will stay in for about a week. Uh, this is sort of the final appearance postoperatively, uh, and then about a, uh, six weeks later, this is the appearance of the vagina. You can see the patients have fairly nice definition of the uh, labia minora, uh, and uh, they have uh, the clitoris is hidden inside uh, the area of the labia minora. Uh, these are just other results to give you a sense of sort of the variety of options and. I try to take into account what you know, patients want. So some want not a well-defined labia minora and want sort of, you know, thicker or fatter labia majora. We try to do our best to accommodate that um, appearance standing up. Um, again, just a variety of options. So postoperatively, patients generally do pretty well. Uh, they have some pain, but not too bad. They're usually in the hospital three to four days. Uh, we ask them not to ambulate for two days uh, to allow the free graft the stroidal graft to stay in place. Uh, and then about a week later, uh, they come to the office to get their packing removed. Uh, they have to uh, dilate uh, the vagina essentially for the rest of their life, uh, but the uh, further out from surgery they get, uh, initially uh, becomes a little uh, uh, less frequent after about a year or two. Uh, but uh, if you don't uh, dilate, then there's a tendency for the uh, both the flap uh, from the phallic skin as well as the free graft to start to constrict down. Uh, but generally, uh, patients can do this pretty easily, um, and uh, they can actually substitute sex uh, for uh, dilation over time. Uh, an alternative is the uh, using a sigmoid uh, for the vaginoplasty. We tend to do this in salvage cases if patients have had uh, significant complications uh, from, let's say, a vaginal stenosis or severe vaginal stenosis or a fistula repair, um, but it's usually not a primary surgery, uh, at least for me, because uh, the sigmoid tends to make mucus and uh, patients will always have to wear a pad. Uh, but there's a lower incidence of uh, uh, vaginal stenosis and uh, patients obviously don't necessarily need to, need to lubricate when they have intercourse, unlike the standard penile uh, inversion technique. Now, the outcomes are, I think, overall good. So this is, again, a meta-analysis of uh, prior papers. This analysis was about four years ago, four years ago and I think uh, we've only gotten better since then. Uh, this paper found about 70% uh, uh, of patients retain their ability of orgasms. Uh, in my own experience, it's probably more like 90 to 95%, so it's much better than this. Uh, but still, I think it's, uh, it's fair. Uh, the rates of fistula tissue necrosis are quite low, uh, as I've uh, shown on the bottom. And as we've gotten better and better uh, technically, I think these rates have gone down. Uh, our big issue has still been the vaginal stenosis. Uh, and I think this is a reasonable estimate, about 14% of patients. Uh, and this requires uh, additional surgeries to repair. And sometimes it can be quite recalcitrant uh, and may even need something like a sigmoid vaginoplasty. 
Uh, prolapse, uh, fortunately, is not that common. Uh, one of the modifications I've done is start suturing uh, the vaginal wall to the prostate uh, to prevent that prolapse. And since we've done that, we haven't had any cases. Uh, overall, the vaginal depth, uh, I think, is good. Uh, it's better with a sigmoid vaginal plasty. Um, I aim for about six inches uh, for patients, and uh, with the use of a scrotal graft, uh, we're able to do that. Um, there's a lot of other techniques you can use, such as peritoneum, as I mentioned earlier, to get further depth. But most patients are sat and their partners are satisfied with six inches. Uh, re regret is quite rare, um, and uh, most of the recent studies where you know, these centers have had adequate psychological support uh, have shown very little regret. Uh, overall, uh, a very high satisfaction rate uh, with the vaginoplasty. Now, uh, in terms of uh, female to male surgeries, as I mentioned earlier, these surgeries are far more complicated. So the numbers of surgeries that are done are much less uh, than the numbers of surgeries with vaginoplasties. Uh, now, metoidoplasties are essentially using this hormonally enlarged clitoris uh, and uh, reconstructing a urethra. Uh, a phalloplasty is using a local free flap uh, or a free, uh, or a, a local flap, or a, a free flap, rather, to create a new phallus. The metoidoplasty is a far less complicated operation to do. Uh, patients have sensation, uh, they're able to urinate standing up, uh, and you don't really burn bridges, so you can still convert to a phalloplasty at a later point. Uh, unfortunately, however, uh, the metoidoplasty, uh, you're left with a short penis, uh, which is essentially just the however big you can get your clitoris to be uh, from testosterone. Uh, there's no erections uh, and uh, patients can't really have penetrative sex. You can get some sort of firmness in the clitoris with the arousal, with arousal, uh, but most patients report difficulty being able to penetrate their partner with it. The phalloplasty, um, you can also urinate standing up. You get a very big penis, uh, which is sort of a normal size or even bigger than normal size penis. You can implant the penile prosthesis at a later point uh, so patients can have penetrative sex, but it, it comes with a, at the cost of a very high complication rate, usually requires multiple stage surgeries. Uh, there's less sensation, and wherever you take that tissue from, be it the forearm, uh, the latissimus dorsi, or the thigh, uh, you're, you're left often with significant um, scar in that site uh, that patients have to hide with tattoos or um, you know, by wearing a sleeve uh, in the case of the forearm. So you know, with a metoidoplasty, uh, you can add in testicular implants. Uh, this is uh, one of our cases. Engorgement and sensation is still present, but you can see that the phallus is small. And essentially what we're doing with the operation is freeing up the attachments, the suspensory ligament of the, uh, and the infundibular ligaments of the clitoris, bringing it down, and then you're left with essentially a hypospadiac uh, neophallus, uh, where the urethra is at a way, uh, away from the tip of the phallus, and we've got to come up with some way to reconstruct that urethra. So the first question is, do you even want to do that? And these are decisions, is something we talk to patients about. Some patients just want sort of what they call a simple uh, metoidoplasty and want uh, to have a phallus, but they don't mind sitting down to urinate, uh, and they don't want to have the risk of complications of doing this uh, you know, urethroplasty. Uh, some patients choose to have a testicular implants, and some patients will choose to leave their vagina intact and just do the metoidoplasty you know, with or without the urethral lengthening uh, so they can still have penetrative intercourse. And this is where you get sort of a variety of sort of gender identities. Uh, if you leave the vagina intact, you have a much higher fistula rate uh, if you try to create uh, a urethra uh, at the same time. So we tell patients, you know, there are some medical consequences of this. 
Uh, and we also ask patients if they think they might want a phalloplasty, we can sort of tailor the operation in a way that doesn't burn bridges uh, in the future should they do it. Uh, and so these are all of the decisions that we are talking about when the patients first come in to discuss uh, metoidoplasty. And they're also inter interrelated. And so you have to make sure you're not doing something that the patient might end up regretting later on. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the simplest metoidoplasty is just that we release the infundibular and suspensory ligament. So that brings the clitoris down and be to become the new phallus uh, and release uh, the cordy uh, to have a straight phallus. Uh, but you're left with a patient still has to sit down and uh, they're unable, when they urinate rather. Um, what we do, uh, and partly because I was trained with uh, Dr. Miro Georgievic from Belgrade, but what we do is uh, a combination of a buccal mucosal graft dorsally or a free skin graft and combine that with a ventral vaginal flap to create a new urethra. Uh, and so the uh, urethra comes out at the tip of the phallus uh, and patients can urinate standing up uh, as a consequence. There's a lot of different variations as well that other centers have devised. Um, but uh, overall, and this is some of our results here. You can see uh, that uh, we were able to bring the urethra to the tip. You know, we will place testicular implants at the same time. Uh, in this case, uh, the vagina was preserved, the second uh, image here. Uh, but it's, uh, I think it's a reasonably looking, reasonable looking phallus, although it's short, uh, and patients have to accept that. Uh, in this case, the patient did not want his vagina uh, preserved, uh, but didn't also want uh, urethral lengthening. And so the urethra is still at the base of the phallus. There's no vagina, uh, and uh, we have sort of a smaller looking phallus, uh, but I think overall reasonable. Uh, this complications and outcomes are, I think, are acceptable. So there's been different uh, uh, series on these. Uh, our own data shows probably about a 20% complication rate, but the complications tend to be things that can be tre treated, uh, such as a fistula with a minor second surgery. We have had a couple strictures that we've treated with buccal mucosal grafts uh, successfully. Uh, I think our data is better than uh, what's been published out there. Now, uh, with phalloplasties, we've uh, started uh, a newer technique of doing this, which uh, we'll probably publish soon, uh, using a suprapubic phalloplasty, which is probably the easiest surgery that can be done. And here we're taking the tissue uh, above the abdomen uh, really relying on the superficial inferior epigastric artery as our main blood supply uh, and kind of creating a new phallus using this. So this is a patient fresh uh, post-op. Uh, the patient had previously had a metoidoplasty. You can see the catheter coming out at the tip of the uh, urethra on the bottom there. Uh, the downside of this operation is that you don't get sensation at the tip of the, uh, at the, tip of the phallus. And uh, this patient will require future urethroplasties to construct a urethra that goes towards the tip of the penis, and then we'll also need a glansplasty. We use a Norfolk technique uh, to make uh, cosmetic appearing uh, glands here. Uh, but it's an operation that took us an hour to do, uh, very uh, straightforward. Uh, more complicated operations, and I don't do this myself, is the radial forearm flap. And here we're using essentially uh, the forearm based on, on the radial artery, and uh, using this as a free flap uh, that then gets transplanted into the penis. This is quote, considered the gold standard, uh, although it leaves a terrible scar in the forearm and the phallus tends to atrophy over time. Uh, other options are the, whoops, are the latissimus dorsi flap, which is, again was popularized by my partner at Mount Sinai, Miro Georgievic. Um, and this relies on the thoracodorsal artery. So uh, this is our go-to if a patient doesn't want to get a uh, suprapubic phalloplasty. 
the uh, anterior lateral thigh flap uh, is, a, uh, again, another option. Uh, this relies on the circumflex femoral arteries, uh, but it often uh, you have to really pick the right patient because if the patient has a lot of subcutaneous tissue, they'll be left with a Coke can uh, phallus, like this very thick phallus. Uh, I think we won't quite go through this because we're uh, running out of time, but there, no, this, these are the discussions I have with patients on the advantages and disadvantages with all of these options. We look at you know, the creation of the urethra, how complicated it's gonna be, sensation, uh, and the donor site scar. Uh, again, we've started to increasingly favor the suprapubic phalloplasty because it's a straightforward operation and uh, patients are really happy with the cosmetic appearance of this. Uh, once you do the phalloplasty, I did have a video of this, which I don't think we have time for this, but we can also do a glansplasty. So this is a glansplasty appearance after about a week. Uh, and in this situation, we're refashioning the coronal sulcus, uh, laying a free graft uh, uh, right below the coronal sulcus. Uh, and this patient will heal very nicely and have sort of a well-defined uh, phallus. We also discussed potential um, issues on uh, what do you do with a urethra afterwards. So this patient had had a RFF, the radial forearm flap, uh, and then we can actually hook up the uh, metoidoplasty urethra to the, uh, the rest of the phallus as well to create um, uh, continuity. And now the patient can stand urinating, uh, to stand to urinate through the tip of the phallus. Uh, and this is what it looks like. In this case, we also preserve the clitoris and leave it at the base of the penis, uh, de-epithelialized usually, uh, to allow them to have uh, uh, orgasms and sexual stimulation. And we'll kind of go through this quickly. So this is a patient uh, where we have to do a urethroplasty afterwards. So in some of the slides I showed earlier, these patients who had metoidoplasties and then choose to have a phalloplasty. This is one technique. This patient had had actually five operations before he met us, so it's quite complicated. Uh, but we can lay a buccal graft in and use local flaps in a standard sort of uh, Johansson or BRCA technique uh, to do the urethroplasty. Uh, in addition, uh, we've already talked a little bit about uh, testicular prostheses. Uh, you can do this after both the metoidoplasty and the phalloplasty. Um, and for uh, these uh, patients who have phalloplasties, you can put in a penile prosthesis. We generally like to do this as a third stage or a final stage operation after we know everything else is healed. Uh, for these patients, and this permits them to have um, penetrative intercourse. Uh, generally, I like uh, three-piece penile prostheses rather than uh, semi-rigid prostheses to de uh, decrease the risk of uh, erosions in these patients. Uh, unfortunately, with these prostheses, the risk of complications are quite high, uh, well over 50% risk of uh, complications whoops, uh, in these patients. Uh, and so we go in saying, listen, uh, this is not a standard penile prosthesis. You know, we have to anchor the prosthesis to the pubic bone. You know, there's, it's not fixed in the same way it is in a cisgendered patient. Um, and you know, as long as the patient accepts this fairly high risk of complications, uh, I think this 43% that was written in this paper is probably an underestimate um, of the risk of complications uh, in these patients. Now, in just the remaining next few minutes, we'll go through some complications. Uh, in terms of the vaginoplasty, uh, there's a lot of things that can go bad. Uh, bleeding and infection are obviously one of them, but the bleeding typically occurs from the urethra uh, or when we're creating the vaginal pocket. Uh, and we'll go through each of these. I have some uh, images. So you can get flap necrosis. Uh, fistulas is one of the dreaded complications where patients may need to be temporarily diverted uh, as a result if it's a particularly big fistula. Uh, strictures, you know, vaginal stenosis is a problem and potential prolapse, uh, as well as urinary symptoms. 
So uh, in terms of flap necrosis, this is actually one of my patients. Um, you can see that uh, essentially there's a blood supply problem. We have necrosis to the posterior wall of the vagina. Uh, these patients actually do remarkably well though. So we managed these, this patient conservatively and just had them do uh, moisture dry dressings. Uh, and over time, I think it healed fairly nicely. Uh, the patient did get a, uh, whoops, a revision surgery, uh, which is here, and just kind of evened out some of the unevenness. Uh, but the patient at the end of the day did fine, had normal sensation and um, had uh, vaginal patency and was able to have intercourse. So not as big a problem as it looked initially. So when you first see it, it really you know, panics you, but then the patients heal remarkably well. Uh, this was not uh, our, my patient, but this is a, one of the issues is that you have to make sure that you, you know, place the urethra in the right spot. In this, pa in this case, I think the urethra is placed too deep into the vagina or uh, the urethra eroded through into the vagina. And so the patient was urinating into the vagina and um, uh, you know, had to uh, advance the urethra, which is quite complicated. Uh, the second case, uh, which is also not my patient, was a fistula uh, that occurred. Uh, and this is... A fistula generally tend to occur right uh, uh, very uh, superficially uh, at the level uh, when you're first doing the dissection around the urethra. Uh, in this case, the patient had already been diverted and we were able to close a fistula uh, primarily. Uh, we had a colorectal surgeons available as well. Uh, and we just bought an, a, a flap over from the uh, perineum to cover the site uh, successfully. Again, uh, not one of my patients, but a case we treated. Uh, this patient had an aborted vaginoplasty, and you can see that uh, there's a fairly dense natal uh, stricture. Uh, this is not that common a problem, fortunately. Uh, this patient didn't have any depth to the vagina at all, so just you know, completely flat, what we call a zero-depth uh, vaginoplasty. Uh, and she, at the, you know, she was 75 years old, or seven, in her early 70s, and didn't want to have, have it. She just wanted to urinate normally. We were able to use a buccal graft and lay it in, and uh, she's done fine since then. Uh, one of my dreaded complications is a vaginal stenosis. So this was one of my patients, um, and uh, she developed essentially a, a lichen sclerosis around the vagina. Uh, we excised all of that lichen sclerosis and were able to create a U-flap uh, and brought it down into the vagina to uh, create a patent vagina. Uh, we've also had uh, a case where the graft didn't take the scrotal graft that we placed. Uh, in this case, this just sort of the dead skin just came out. Uh, the depth was good enough. And I think uh, that uh, on cystoscopic examination or endoscopic examination, it looked like the tissue had epithelialized on its own. So we got kind of lucky in this case. Uh, but since then, since this case, I've started to suture all of my um, the vaginal flaps and the grafts in place uh, to the prostate to prevent this kind of uh, prolapse from occurring. Uh, this was fortunately not my case, a case from Pennsylvania. Uh, and in this case, they just didn't excise enough urethra. So the patient, especially when she got aroused, developed uh, a very huge urethra that obviously prevented intercourse and cosmetically was quite uh, deforming uh, and had a very misdirected stream. So uh, she, had, she was peeing over the toilet when she sat down to urinate. Uh, and this is not as easy a repair as you might imagine, but we have to really take down the entire urethra and potentially construct a new vagina uh, in this case. Now, the most common complications after uh, masculinizing surgeries are probably strictures. Um, uh, and these usually occur at the junctions where we've kind of put things together uh, in an area called the pars fixa uh, uh, and uh, the native urethra or the pars fixa and the penile urethra. 
the pars fixa is a portion of the urethra that uh, we create using uh, the va vaginal flap. Uh, oftentimes, you might need to do stage procedures. Sometimes they have uh, a, a vaginal remnant that occurs so that um, basically the vagina reforms and gets epithelialized because of the stricture and back pressure on this. Um, and uh, they might need to be uh, temporarily diverted. Uh, so this was uh, one of our uh, metoidoplasty, not ours, but this was a metoidoplasty that presented to us. And you can see on retrograde urethrogram, they have a fairly long stricture that we were able to repair using a uh, buckle graft. Uh, and this is what the uh, rug looked like after the repair. Um, this is after a phalloplasty. And it's a fairly complicated repair when you have a stricture because the entire length of the phallus uh, needs to be repaired uh, potentially. Um, Generally, uh, intermittent catheterization dilations don't work, although we have very minimal data on this. Uh, and they require some form of a urethroplasty or even a perineal urethrostomy to repair this. Um, and this is the vaginal remnant I'd mentioned earlier. So you're left with potentially a backflow of urine pressure that requires, um, that causes this vaginal remnant to form. Uh, fairly complicated surgery to fix, but you can excise the vaginal remnant and also do a urethroplasty, in two, usually in two stages. So this was the first stage um, uh, where the buccal graft had been laid in, which will then be uh, tubularized uh, in the second stage, which is here. Uh, I think we're, we have about five minutes left. Alex, I don't know if uh, we should take questions. We're just about finishing here. But uh, fistulas can be, uh, you know, usually will close up on their own. Uh, we can do a urinary diversion or potentially urethroplasty. Uh, fairly high stricture fistula rates overall uh, for these patients. Uh, hair is another issue. Um, and to finish up here in the next minute or so, uh, I think we'll all be seeing a lot more of these patients uh, as you know, gender identities are becoming uh, sort of increasingly fluid, and especially among the younger populations, transgender patients are being accepted and not being ostracized. Uh, I found that this process we have in place at Sinai is critical for a successful practice where you know, patients who get screened out appropriately, and we have good outcomes in large part because of the work that everyone else does before they even patients even um, get to the operating table. Um, and generally, phalloplasty is a very high complication rate. So you have to go in saying that now, there's a high risk of problems with this surgery and um, potentially might need additional surgeries and patients have to accept that fact. Uh, but I think we're at the beginning of a new era. A lot of research is going on on this. We're doing some basic science research on what can happen to these patients at a, you know, both at a molecular level uh, from all these hormones as well as uh, clinical outcomes research are going on. But uh, I think this is a time where a young enterprising urologist um, could really make a big impact on the field we're essentially at the beginning of sort of the era of prostate cancer when Pat Walsh first came up with the neurospiring prostatectomy. We're at that period now in gender affirmation surgery. So I uh, wanted to thank everyone. Uh, and that there I'll take some questions in the last five minutes. Uh, we do have a, a fellowship program if anyone's interested. Um, that's gonna be in a year from now will be official GERS certified fellowship. We've submitted the application for that. Um, this year our fellow is gonna be uh, fellow from uh, Mount Sinai. So uh, that, Alex, I'll take any questions if anyone has any. That was an amazing presentation, Dr. Barohit. Very comprehensive, and I agree, really exciting stuff. Um, very interesting, pushing the, pushing the boundaries of reconstructive surgery and bringing lots of yeah. different techniques and teams together. Um, it's really cool. Um, 
I have a quick question for all the residents and there are some medical students tuned in too. Um, I've heard from many people that they are interested in um, gender affirmation surgery, but maybe their programs or their schools don't uh, have, um, you know, surgeons uh, doing this right now. So for people who are interested, but aren't quite maybe at the level of doing a fellowship yet, what do you think is the best way to learn more about this space? Well, I mean, it's tough. We always, you know, we welcome visitors. Um, if someone wants to come in, uh, their program allows them to spend a week uh, with me to just watch what we do. Um, you know, we're lucky because uh, Miro Georgievic, who's really one of the founders of the whole field, has joined uh, Sinai uh, this year. He comes four months a year and uh, from Serbia, where he has his own center. Uh, but when he comes, we'll have two rooms running basically four days a week. Uh, doing these surgeries, um, doing you know, really complicated stuff. And then, you know, it's a great time if someone's interested and they can take a week off or if they have a research here to come and watch us operate. Um, uh, other than that, they can always, you know, send me, if they have questions about it, they can send me an email um, about it. And again, if you're really interested, uh, I know we're, I think our fellowship is, it's going to be a really a spectacular fellowship in terms of the volume of cases and the types of cases that we're doing. So we also obviously do a lot of cisgendered surgeries such as urethroplasties um, as well as prostheses and other things. So, Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much. And thanks for including your email and your Twitter handle here. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure people will be reaching out to you. Uh, one technical question uh, from my friend Jane Kurtzman at Columbia. She said, great talk. Uh, how do you modify your vaginoplasty technique to accommodate for shorter penile lengths in patients who started hormone therapy prior to puberty? And uh, before you answer that, actually, Lee Zhao is here and chimed in that at NYU, they're doing robotic peritoneal flop vaginoplasties to allow for adequate vaginal depth in the context of pubertal suppression. So um, are you doing any robotics or how do yeah, you- Yeah, actually, we've learned a lot from Lee, um, some of the techniques, and hopefully we'll start doing it. Uh, that's a great question, and it's an issue. So what we've done in the past, if a patient doesn't have enough adequate scrotal skin, is uh, take a peritoneal graft uh, rather than a peritoneal flap, you know, rather than what Dr. Zhao does. Uh, we'll harvest a graft and use that. I've also used uh, tunica vaginalis if a patient has, which is essentially an equivalent, you know, embryologically speaking, to the peritoneum. Um, if a patient has some tunica vaginalis, uh, but I think potentially the robotic uh, you know, flap that uh, Lee describes is really a potentially a great, great alternative as well.